Welcome to the Southbank Centre podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Senior Programmer for Literature and Spoken Word. Today, we're bringing you some of our best bits from 2017's London Literature Festival. This year's festival encompasses the 50th anniversary of Poetry International, an expanded children's programme, Young Adult Literature Weekender, and explores how literature and poetry can remind us of our shared humanity in a world on the brink. So sit back and listen to some of the biggest and most inspiring writers from around the globe, including Philip Pullman and other major speakers, including Hillary Rodham Clinton and Tom Hanks. My name's Ben Thompson. I co-wrote this book with Goldie, so I've got a huge emotional investment. So if you see me crying at any point in the afternoon, that will just be because I've given so much. But the man who's really given everything to this book, trying to get the right introduction for him, there's quite a good one on the back of the book. It says, uh, a constant innovator who revolutionised jungle not once but thrice, according to Simon Reynolds. Um, But I'm going to use his own introduction to himself, which is in a chapter that I don't think he's going to be reading. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please give your warmest welcome to Goldie, the Dorian Gray of fucking breakbeats. Hello, Ben. You know what, I still do stuff like coming out, you know, you come out, you get butterflies. As long as I get butterflies, I know it means something. It means that I've got the, that artistic thing still, that fire. So I'm very nervous, believe it or not, but I'm just projecting that I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> they're, not they're not seeing it, they're not seeing it. The way this book works is it is divided up as a life is into a lot of different fragments. And sometimes when you're writing these books, there's a temptation to make it all very smooth and you go kind of birth, school, work, death, and it can be quite tedious. What we've done in this book is the opposite. It's basically a remix of a whole life. My nutty mind, basically. (laughs) We let Goldie's mind be our leader, and it was. We're going to start with... This is chapter B3, because the book is divided up into sides, like a uh, four-disc vinyl set. And uh, (laughs) B3 is the poem Hamwich the Haunted. I don't read out in public a lot, so the only time I've read out is in court, when you say your name and your birth. (laughs) Sounds about... This is a poem I wrote about my time in West Midlands Children's Home called Hammerwich. Huge sweeping staircases with black underneath. The smell of old mould, it would give you the creeps. The sound of old ghosts in that Hammerwich home. Pool tables, old lockers and sitting alone. Old church classrooms filled with big fat bullies. I'm so glad I'm so small, so rolled up they won't even see me. Hedgehog style, with a smile. I must remember I'm breathing. Wash your hands for tea. All 25 of you ran. It's panic and mayhem. The toothpaste, the crayons. Jesus will save us, especially on Sundays. I'll give you my mother's address, but I don't know where she is. Isn't it good to know that Starchsky and Hutch exist and that bacon and eggs comes from pigs? What if, what if, what if I could walk through walls, levitate or disappear? turn into a glass ball, or a TV, or melt doors. Who was that boy with one front tooth? He was really, really nice to me, and he always told me the truth, that he wouldn't be here for much longer, and he would be going away to live with his old uncle, whose name was Trevor Murray. He never left my mind because I cried a lot that day. Hammerwitch the Haunted the creepy crawly, 
the place with the stairs for the boys that were naughty. It's not all poems. We're going to have some. Pro- no, we're going to have some. It's not going like that. So I'll get the small violin out yet. <laughs> Did you write that at the time? Or no, years I, wrote, after? I wrote that at kind of ninety. I think it was like ninety-seven on a lot of drugs at some point. I kind of wrote a lot of poetry back in the nineties when I was hedonistic in a sense. I kind of. I felt it was almost like a cleansing thing. Not that it is. You know what I mean? You got to spend loads of money on gear for a weekend. You know, go and do loads of acid and think. Yeah, I'll just go and write a bit of poetry and I'll be cleansed. But I think it was a really good thing to do. I think that something quietly whispered in my mind, and I think it was the beginning of something special to be able to, to remember. And it's the very premise of the book. Going back to that small violin, I think we, a, a lot of us, there's a letter chapter called Victimitis. A lot of young people, we, we tend to lean towards that kind of, I'm the victim here. And really, you've got to kind of shake that energy, man. Like, for me, it was about finding my, my identity and realising that it's not bad to write about those kind of stories because they're the ones that make you. We're going to leap forward for the next extract. In a way, it starts in the 90s because it's kind of about hard-partying Labour, Labour Party politicians. It's also about your, uh, oh. your role as the conscience of drum and bass. And uh, there is a bit of swearing in this. The F word has probably been a favourite part of my English dialogue for a long time, and I must excuse myself. Uh, uh, and when we were doing in the final stages of the editing of the book, some people at the publishers did say, look, could we just like, <laughs> could we <laughs> lose one in three? And I thought it was very important not to lose any. So they're all still here. Uh, and uh, I, I might Goldstein admit them. He's going to read a chapter which is called Ed Balls. Yeah. <laughs> you know that thing when you sat down at a dinner table with someone famous and you've had a few drinks? So you ask them the question no one would usually dare to ask. That happened to me with the Labour politician Ed Balls. A little bit tipsy, I leant over to him and said, why do you like politics, Ed? Why politics? Level with me, just between me and you. And all of a sudden he leant back over to me and he said, power. There it is, right there and then. That's the devil I know. On one hand, I know he was just telling me the truth to get me off his back. But on the other, I respected him for telling me that truth. That's the kind of conversation I can imagine myself having with some of these drum and bass gentrified bastards who think it's a good idea to work with Gary Barlow. No disrespect to Gary, I like pop music. But within the genre of where we come from, it would start off in the same way. Come on, tell me the truth, man. You know it's a lot of bollocks. You know what you're doing is bollocks. Just between me, you admit it. You know it's bollocks. Yes, it's bollocks. Okay, right, you finally admitted it to me with your own words. There you go. There it is. It almost infuriates me even more when you're only now telling me the truth, but at least you're finally doing it. Because now at least we can both agree that as far as drum and bass is concerned, as a cultured music, you no longer have a stake in the matter. There's no credibility there. Zero anything, because that's not what we do. And don't pretend that it is. And that's the end of it. That's in my opinion. To me, certain things are out of bounds. The genre, which you know, stems from jazz in the same way, you know, it earns us all this beautiful money. It's a beautiful thing. And I get the fact there's a certain greed and a certain jealousy within that industry that you weren't quite the Robin Hoods that we were of the 90s. And I realise that you don't understand that. But listen to me. Even me and Robbie Williams in the 90s, on some really good Peruvian flake at four in the morning, knew that making a record together was going to be a bad idea. <laughs> and if anyone from Take That was going to have something to do with drum and bass, Robbie Williams, just for the record, went to the Blue Note... Robbie Williams, for the record, liked the music. 
and Robbie Williams, for the record, realised that making drum and bass was not going to be the thing to do. But Gary fucking Barlow. I wish you all the best. I hope you get another number one. I get all of that. A new extension, a new car, even a new girlfriend. But you don't have a fucking say in the matter, Sunshine. Because when you sign the cheque, we snip the corner off it. It's null, it's void. It's very simple. You don't have a say. So just park it, meet me on a plane, wave to me, say hello, how's it going? But do not talk to me about drum and bass as a genre of music. I just want to make a, a few points about that, because you can look at that, it is subjective in itself. I couldn't imagine, imagine Miles Davis, I'm not Miles Davis, or Mingus, or any of those jazz people that we followed as a genre. No disrespect to Kylie Minogue, working with Kylie, for example, because within the genre of jazz, it has its own boundaries. It's only because of the internet and only because of the way that technology has become why drum and bass was the last bastion of a kind of subculture, if you like. You know, I remember when Shy FX, when, when he was doing Shake Your Body really early on, you know, we were all supporting that because it was something that was so integral about when that happened. When you've grown up in a genre which is stacked by technology in what we call the time machine, it's like we hit this wall and we just stacked up. I like the idea of adults making music for adults. You undermine the very genre when you think you can feed the kids something what, you know, you think that's what it is. And I think you have to find it in its own way. There's nothing wrong with gentrification, don't get me wrong. You can't just plant a lot of trees and think that's the way to solve planting trees is what it's about. It's about where's, how's that forest gonna, gonna multiply with other parts of that forestry and growth. Because it's always been a bit of a gray area but you can't misjudge the genre as a genre. It spent 25 years growing up through, on the back of Detroit techno, on the back of rave culture, a British culture in its own right. I understand the industry of it now, but I think I'm in the position where I can voice what most people don't when they get into that position of power by just kind of laying down a few of those ground rules because they're already there if you care to look. Did you actually have to pay for Ed Balls' dinner? I actually paid for the dinner. I asked for the cheque. It was at the Ivy. And I, and I, I mean, he, he fell on the same sword I did. I was never a good dancer on Strictly, let's face it. But he did put the kids through university. <laughs> My life's always been like the Guardian commercial, you know? You see this guy, looks like a thug, and he's about to run and, and grab this woman's handbag. But when you look at the bigger picture, he's actually trying to save her from something falling. I was asked to go to number 10 to meet Gordon Brown. I was then asked to go and address 200 social workers because social workers were having a really bad time. I had some great social workers that really looked after me, man. I would never have survived without social workers' help. You know, and now they're looked at as Satan, do you know what I mean? Like, and they've got a tough job, like ambulance drivers or nurses. They have a tough job with very little budgets and sleepless nights of looking after young people. So I went and addressed these 200 social workers, got a standing ovation. Let's go for dinner. Great. Know a great place. Buy the fucking meal, man. Do you know what I mean? Put your hand in your pocket, I'm sorry. Do you know what I mean? Uh, what we're going to do now is, we refer to the sort of the social work period, but this is just after that. We're going to go to the time when, you, when your uh, graffiti exploits in Heath Town uh, oh. were, at, were at their height, and it's a chapter called If You Can't Say It, Spray <sighs> It. Yeah. So I was living in this concrete jungle, which was Heath Town, Wolverhampton, namely Apley Firetown. 
I was doing as much graffiti as I possibly could morning, noon and night. I was doing so much graffiti that I'd run out of wall space. Not just in the flat I was living in, but the whole estate. And for some reason, the police just could not catch me. It became crazy because whatever it was, and then all of a sudden, thanks to bombing, thanks to Gus, my, my inherited father over there, I was living the dream and uh, living, I was in New York meeting my heroes and physically living the dream. There's an interview with me on YouTube from that time in New York wearing a fur coat with a drink in my hand. Not pissed, but just relaxing myself, full of beans, full of balls, and just full of steel, full of everything. Full of a little bit of bullshit, I guess, too. Every little bit of sperm and kicking it hard. I was just drenched in ego, spunky as fuck, totally ruling. And my accent was all over the place because I was like from New York, Wolverhampton, all mixed in. So when suddenly you're on Staten Island and doing a graffiti piece and this artist you looked up for years from afar says, you ready for this, man? You're an English boy, right? You've got to be able to say, yeah, let's make this happen straight off the bat. So when I got back to Wolverhampton, once Bombard had come out, and also because of the big graffiti events we were doing locally, I'd have all these kids coming from Heath Town on little, prim on a little pilgrimage from all around the Midlands just to look at graffiti. And I guess there's a little bit of a Pied Piper thing going on, you know, wanting to help these kids along. I was a proper little fagin on the estate, and at this time I was living next door to a gambling house in the block called Hawthorne House. So they're always gambling 24 hours a day. And people would often walk into my flat because my door was open. I'd end up uh, just turning around and saying hello to some drug dealer who's coming to buy some weed. <laughs> Next door, mate. It's the wrong place. So I'd often end up bombing up and down the M5 to Bristol for sound system and parties in St. Paul's. It was a mental time. I met Mushroom, Tricky, everyone that would become Massive Attack. And most importantly, they were the Wild Bunch, Milo, the main man. It was almost as if hip-hop culture had dropped like a glass in England and the glass had shattered into different pieces. Manchester had the breaking, Bristol had the parties, Birmingham had the graffiti. When I was at the first of the dugout club in Bristol with the Wild Bunch, when I first met them, these Bristol people were the absolute nuts. They were the start of me realising that all those breaks on mixtapes actually came from somewhere. They had a belonging. An idea which comes up in quite a few different context in the book is the idea of gentrification which mm. you know we talk about the gentrification of drum and bass and obviously it's it's almost graffiti it's an even bigger thing especially if you're you know we, we did an event earlier on in this in the process of this book in Shoreditch which is like graffiti central your feeling about it isn't like oh this has all been spoilt now it's completely no I think I think there's an aspect of society is like a bike chain and when you have latency within urban culture it's not about throwing glass stones, you know, stones from a glass house. The latency I'm talking about is why doesn't the government adapt to allowing it to be legal to paint in certain areas? Because we do it in Barcelona, we do it in Berlin. You know, you know I had a meeting with the mayor six months ago, you know, and I've seen their cultural plan and it's, it's beautiful because they're finally realizing you cannot kill culture. It will adapt to its environment. And I think street culture, the barbarians from within have always taught us something about ourselves. There'll be people in two or three years' time hacking billboards that are electronic and putting their own shit on there. Guarantee you. That's a good idea. They're going to be doing it a lot. You know, would Da Vinci have used an iPad if he would have access to it? I think he would have used it. 
David Hockney got straight on that one. Matisse, when he was unable to do the stuff that he did, he came up with the cutouts. You know, I think we find ways. It's really important, I think, to, to, to allow, you know, because if you remove graffito from society and you remove, you know, the baseball cap or anything that's influenced by street culture right now, there'd be a lot of blank spaces in this room. There'd be a lot of blank spaces around everywhere that I'm around in London and around the country and around the globe because it's one of those things that, that people will always be doing that. You know, yeah. you can't take away that culture. But people buy into that and we, you know, we buy that part of the culture. We can buy the T-shirt and put it in Barney's and it's safe and we love Banksy, we get it. A lot of people died painting graffiti because they just wanted to express themselves. You know, we have to move on from that and understand we have to embrace the arts. The passage we're going to read next is it's kind of almost going back to the incidents you described in the poem and looking at them through another, another filter, these kind of very formative childhood moments. Yeah. Um, and, and this kind of introduces the, the time machine idea, which is... Yeah, I particularly love this chapter. I really love this, this chapter because it came off straight off the bat. I think it's interesting that the way that book is just darts everywhere... There are two very cinematic episodes of my childhood which I've always been associated with, the songs that soundtrack them to my mind. The first was at Hammerwich Children's Home between Chasewater and Brown Hills. As my earlier poem would have made it clear, that was a very scary place to be, very Dickinson, with a very huge sweeping staircase, haunted like... You've heard the bad stories. The kids were always pissing the bed. I got bullied there a lot. I would, they were just being dicks. They'd lock me in this basement, very low ceiling. And uh, they used to play football in there. So I was screaming and shouting, open the fucking door, open the door, open the door. I can't be sure how long or how old I was, but probably about eight. But it was clearly an early part of my life. It was like having one flew over the cuckoo's next nest moment. But there was an incident at Amwich which later took my life by storm. I was looking back on being like a child's version of the film. It was like Matron. Ugh! Trevor was there a few years. He was there older than me, mixed race. It was like he was, a, he was a bit darker than me and he only had one front tooth. And I think they stopped him going home one weekend for some reason. And he jumped on a snooker table and started singing and dancing in what at first was a light-hearted protest. But then more and more they tried to get him down and they started laughing and with it and they started trying to get him off the snooker table. And he started swinging his cue around his head and he started to get pretty scary. Everyone was shouting and screaming and banging the chairs. And I can still pick out there was this voice coming to me with this record player in the background. It was definitely John Holt singing either Help Me Make It Through the Night or Dock of the Bay. Either way, it's going to work well if someone's ever going to make a film on my story. But what was ever better was when the situation reached its climax, just before they finally dragged Trevor off the table, and he had to be locked away for a couple of weeks. And when everyone was just thinking, you know, there was a pause in the music and the room went silent. Then suddenly, stay with me till dawn, Judy Zook came on. Someone had decided that this was the right time to calm the situation down with. And they were right. I'd been scared and then I wasn't. I'd actually been in touch with Judy recently. She's a lovely woman. She was quite taken aback when I told her the string arrangements at the back of Stay With Me Till Dawn had changed my life forever. I'm hoping to work with her one day because the track was definitely one of the starting points for my journey with strings. 
I've always thought that you could trace the line back from Sea of Tears on Timeless to that calming effect of her song and that had me calm in that moment of crisis. I don't know if anyone does this or it's just me. I know my fight or flight mechanism is probably one more hair trigger more than most people. I understand that trauma in my early life has manifested itself into my drug addiction. But I don't think the fact that there was no one I could rely on for a reliable timeline of the events in my life has been given a compulsory ability to bring things into sync around sound. Whether that's by using the threads of the song to stitch up the damaged patchwork quilt of my memory or by directing musicians to make the kind of music I want to hear, it's the same kind of transition. The music almost becomes the timeline and the most of the associations I have to do actually belong in a place and a time my mind puts them in. Like, I know ELO's Mr. Blue Sky, another really big early moment for me, came out in 1977. The year of the Silver Jubilee, because I was in Lou Joseph Children's Zone by then, and I remember having a special Jubilee cup in my hand and waving, waving it around when I heard that song. We're going to have a, well, it's a light heart, I think it will be light hearted passage for people to hear, but it was pretty serious for you at the time. It's the chapter with the self explanatory title, Why Coming Home Smelling of Kebabs. Oh, God, yeah. Is a bad idea when you own a boa constrictor. Yeah, this is this kind of mixed race thing about, you know, when I say half caste, people get really offended. It's like, wow, they used to call me, you know, that's, that's what it was, man, you know what I mean? This is seriously my regressive gene. I always wanted a snake. It was a Miami thing. You know, from when I was working in the flea market, you see lots of drug dealers and players and hustlers walking around the market wearing bulk constrictors like scarves. <laughs> and uh, it was about all status, you know? Anyone can wear snakeskin shoes, right? All you've got to do is have the money. But if you've got a live one around your neck, <laughs> job done. Everyone knows you're a real player. What the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> It was a black thing for me, having a bowl constructor. That's, that's balling. That really is balling. There was this one guy called Russell. He was one of the gang. And he, uh, he let me feel it when I first met him, the texture on his skin. It was like, wow, it's beautiful. So I was something out of Blade Runner. Is he synthetic? No, it's real. Really, it's real. I never thought of snake. You know when you feel a snake, you think, is he going to feel like that? Is he never what you think it's going to feel like? And from that point, I was really fascinated by them. So ultimately, I had to get one. I didn't have to go far to get it either way because it was really strange living in Bovingdon in Hertfordshire of all places. There was a mad little exotic pet shop <laughs> on the high street that sold tarantulas, meerkats, whatever you wanted he had them, including his bowl constrictor, which I bought and named him Lanny. It was manageable at first, but he just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the question was, what do you do with a giant motherfucker starting to get that big he's going to start to get urgent so especially this one time he, he taught himself he leaned up against the glass tank because the lock would come off sometimes and I'd be so drunk I wouldn't even bother putting it on so he'd lean up against the glass and he'd put his body against it and push it open he'd taken a particular lighting, liking to, to my motorbikes and his favourite was to wrap himself around my Ducati but sometimes he'd leave the garage He'd go on a bit of a wander. That was when you had to watch him. He'd done things a couple of times that I thought was a bit strange. I'd come home before where he'd stand up in front of me and he'd hiss. And I'd feel his breath. And you'd think, shit, Lanny. But then you'd step back and he'd get down and you'd be all right. 
you just go on, come on mate, you touched his nose, he'd back away, and then you knew it was safe to pick him up. On this one occasion, when I come back from having a greasy kebab on a night out, at Crystal's Kebab Shop in Holloway, delicious. It was half an hour's drive from home, but I still obviously had the smell of dinner all over me. I'd had a few jars, I'd been a bit complacent. I opened the door and there he was. Fall back up and then I go to pick him up without touching him. Before I touched his underside, there was this hissing sound and then he striked. He wrapped his arm around me. All of a sudden, I'm in a fight with a 15-foot bow constrictor. Do you know how powerful one of these 15-foot bow constrictors is? Once he turned, he started turning me, turning my arm, strong as fuck. Lenny's got a full latch on and he's definitely going to get the better want better of my arm. At this point, my pal's running from the car. Luckily, I've been doing some wallpapering. So I've got the wallpaper table out and there's a special pair of wallpaper scissors on the side. He grabs them. I tell him, right, pull them between his jaws. So he latches them between his jaws and we finally lever this bulk constrictor off my arm. Anyway, there's this period where Lanny's hissing, we finally prize him right and there's claret blood everywhere from the wound on my arm. The angle of his jaw got to be 120 degrees at least on the hand and once I finally freed him up, my hand looked like a deflated Casey ball. I wasn't angry with Lanny, it was my fault for not securing him in the first place properly and then coming on a bit pissed and smelling of meat. But that's the point when you realise he's got to go. It could have been my daughter in those jaws or my dog, my mastiff at the time. That would have been a pretty mad fight. Anyway, he would have put up a good fight, but he was riddled with cancer and I thought, I don't want to lose him. So anyway, off he went to Whipsnade Zoo. <laughs> a story with a happy ending. Are there any visible scars from Lanny's intervention? Well, he got me here and there's a scar along here where my hair is where he gripped my hand and we'd latched them between him. He was a really powerful snake. But apparently, the bigger area you put them into, the bigger they will grow to. And I went to see him in Whipsnade. It's huge. An emotional reunion, was it? <laughs> yeah, I wish it was. Yeah, he's very big. He's about 22 foot now. He's a bad boy. The chapter which I hope you guys will go out and support this book. I'm not going to read yoga now. I think yoga finds you, and it found me. I mean, I did, I got here three days ago did my double, did Stuart Gilchrist class yesterday, which was remarkable, and I'm aching, and I'm in love with it. I'm just in love with yoga. I mean, it's just one of the most prolific sources of energy that I thought I could ever get. And, and I have to thank Michael Copperman, because Michael Copperman, I don't know if he's even here today, but he's a beautiful friend. I'd look at him and I'd go, why is he so fucking zen? <laughs> I wanted to strangle him, do you know what I mean? Like, and he's like, yoga, baby. I'm like, what? So yoga, man. And he said, just come, just come, come, come down. 20 minutes, I was done. I was on the floor, crying like a baby. And I just walked out, fucking, fucking bullshit, fucking tree hugging, fucking shorts. <laughs> and um, I went back the week later. And I went back again and again, and it stuck. I think when I realised that Gil Scott Heron did it before he did The Bridge, which is his comeback album, I thought, if he can do it, I can do it. You can't mess with 5,000 years, man. I think that I managed to salvage and the fractures of that damage that I had 
certainly put a lot of blockage on, on a lot of stuff. And I think this therapy of doing this book with Ben was being able to remember the good, good as well as the bad. Do you know what I mean? Because it's back to that victimitis. There's a chapter called victimitis. My daughter caught it off of me. I caught it. My mother had it. It's victimitis, playing the victim. Tiny violin. I'd rather, I'd rather an orchestra, because that's what life's about. Finding the orchestra in your own life. I think that's as good an ending as we could possibly have. Thank you very much. To hear more podcasts from the festival, listen and subscribe to Southbank Centre Podcasts on iTunes or soundcloud.com forward slash Southbank Centre. To find out about our upcoming literature events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash literature.